Good morning, friends. Thank you, Brian, for your helpful reminder to us of Anzac Day and what was given up by many for us. I, I, as Tom reminded us that, uh, that if we'd been Africans, we would all have been throwing up our hands in the air uh, every, every song that we sang. It reminded me of a friend who spent some time in the southern states of America in lots of uh, African-American churches, black, black American churches, and people are very demonstrative there and love to hold up their hands and even make noise during church. And he said uh, they they like to do that during the sermon as well. And when the preacher is going well and everybody's fired up by what he's saying, people stand up here and there in the church and they say, yes, Jesus, yes, Jesus, thank you, Jesus. Uh, When the preacher's not going so well from time to time, someone stands up and says, help him, Jesus, help him. (laughs) So feel free to, to, um, to be demonstrative. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word and help us to understand the old parts of it and the new parts of it and how you've revealed yourself and the Lord Jesus in all of that so that we might know him better and serve him faithfully. Amen. What a gall Jesus had. What a hide. What an affront to everything that's precious given to us Israelites by God himself. What a mockery of all our handed down traditions and truths. It was time for the Passover. God's specially decreed meal of remembering what he did in saving our fathers from destruction in Egypt and making them a people for himself. 1500 years, 50 generations. We Jews had been remembering God's salvation and celebrating it with thankful hearts as we eat the sacred symbolic meal together. And when the time for the Passover approached, Jesus told us disciples how much he wanted to eat the meal with us before he suffered. Then he organised a room and directed the 12 of us to prepare the Passover. We got going. He picked up the first of the sacred cups that you use in the Passover meal and he spoke of the coming kingdom of God. All good. So we disciples were all sitting around the table waiting for the next parts that we knew so well, off by heart. The words are so familiar. You know, this is the bread of the affliction that our fathers ate in the land of Egypt. Whoever's hungry, let him come and eat. How many times have my mum and my brother and my sisters listened carefully and solemnly to my father going through that routine? Then Jesus, with a deft flick of the wrist and a waggle of his silver tongue, broke the YF bread, that's the yeast-free bread, and he passed it around and he said, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. (laughs) He could have knocked me over with a feather. It got worse. I thought we might have got over our, our strange metaphors and odd words and we could return to the Passover tradition. But then in the next breath, after we'd eaten the bread, more shocks He took the cup and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. Unbelievable. Instead of the lambs who died back in Egypt that we're celebrating, when our forefathers were rescued by God and the Egyptians were killed, he was saying he was the lamb and we had to eat him. And his blood was poured out for us. 
Oh, of course, you need blood to atone for sins with God, uh, for God to turn away his righteous anger. Every good, good Jew knows that. But it was always lamb blood, not man blood. Who did Jesus think he was? And whose permission did he think he had to reinvent the Passover? Well, that's the story that we know from the New Testament. But what was the big deal with the Passover? Because we've just read about the Passover in Exodus 12. What did it all mean and why? And when Jews think about the Passover and Christians think about Easter, we're both thinking about ideas of rescue and sacrifice. But what is sacrifice? What does it even mean? It's a bit bit confusing because I think we have lots of different ideas when we think of the idea of sacrifice. Uh, I looked in the Oxford Dictionary, right? There are a number of definitions, but uh, here are some of them. To give or sell something for less than its worth, less than its real value. Sacrifice my car by giving it to you for half price. Or to suffer disadvantage or injury for the sake of something else. Or to go without or give up something. In Lent, you might know, the 40 days leading up to Easter, uh, people sacrifice things, right? They do without things. Coffee, junk food, sugar, your pillow, social media, eating meat, alcohol, Swearing. These are all listed on websites of good things to sacrifice during Lent. Uh, there's a website that I found called Equipping Godly Women. And uh, this year they had 50 unique ideas of sacrifices to make in Lent, uh, amongst which were things like sleeping in, checking your phone, listening to music in the car. Now, sacrifice those things. Give them up. If you know Harry Potter... Now, Harry's mother, Lily, and his father uh, sacrificed their own lives to try and save Harry's. And when I looked at Harry Potter summaries, I have seen and read Harry Potter, but I did look at the summaries, and when I looked, other sacrifices were listed. Hermione made a huge sacrifice, I was told, by wiping her parents' memories of her and sending them away. And all three, Hermione, Ron, and Harry sacrificed a lot in order to search for horcruxes in what should have been their last year at Hogwarts. It's all a bit confusing, isn't it? And then we think of Anzac Day tomorrow and we remember all sorts of sacrifices made by servicemen and women, giving up their professions, giving up their comfortable lives in Australia, giving up their families for a time and sometimes giving up their own lives for the sake of others. Suffering extreme conditions and and terrible difficulties and we're very, very grateful that they did that. They don't atone for our sins but we give thanks to God for what they suffered to protect our freedom. What about the Bible? That might be a better place to anchor ourselves in the idea of sacrifice. There are many different kinds of sacrifices in the Bible. But behind them all is this idea that humans, by our sin against God, owe our lives as a forfeit to God. The wages of sin is death, we're told. Or, in Hebrews, without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness. 
A sacrificial animal was offered as a substitute for the sinner. It bore the guilt of the sinner. In every sacrifice in the Old Testament, the animal representing the Israelite was condemned to death to pay the wages of sin, death, which the person should have paid. How were the Israelites spared from destruction in the chapter we just read? Because a death took place to save them. A sacrifice, a life for a life. There had to be a death for atonement to take place. In Exodus, a lamb had to be killed by every household. They were going to be spared, but a lamb would have to die. The lamb couldn't be spared. And when God saw that they had grasped the point and killed the lamb and daubed the blood around the doors, he passed over their houses and kept them safe from judgment by rescuing them from Egypt. Now, it's easy to make the mistake, I think, when we when we think back to the Israelites and the story. It's tempting to think that the poor, enslaved Israelites were innocent victims of human tyranny. They were good people at heart, and they deserved to be delivered from oppression. But not so. They were idolaters, like we often are. They were sinful people. They were not innocent at all. They were so fickle in their, in their trust in God that within a chapter or two of this story of the Passover, uh, after God had rescued them from Egypt, they were asking to return there, back to slavery. The, the need for a lamb's blood to be shed is proof that they needed rescuing and delivering and sparing from God's judgment. And I think, too, it's often tempting to think that we're, we're clever modern people and we're sophisticated and we've moved past the primitive need for being set free by a sacrifice, not like the poor old Israelites. That was a long time ago. We're modern people of God and we don't need to wallow around with death and blood and atonement sacrifices and high priests. That's all a bit ancient, gone out of fashion. But we'd be wrong to think that. Jesus said, the most serious slavery of all is slavery to sin. That's the worst kind of slavery. Much worse than political slavery because it means we're guilty and doomed to God's holy judgment and separation from him. He's righteous. He can't look on sin. Don't make the mistake of thinking that we don't need a sacrifice and a high priest to stand between us and the holy God. We do need them. But only God can provide them for us. Now, in the plagues in Egypt that you'll know, before this, just before this happened, in in the last few chapters, um, don't know whether you've noticed, but each plague as it came fell on the Egyptians, only on the Egyptians, but not on the Israelites who lived in Goshen. Goshen was an LGA of northern Egypt at the time, and that's where all the Israelites lived. So in, in chapter 8, on that day, God said, I'll set it, I'll set apart the land of Goshen where my people dwell so that no swarms of flies will be there so that you may know that I'm the Lord in the midst of the earth. I'll put a division between my people and your people. Or in chapter 9, the Lord will make a distinction between the livestock of Israel and the livestock of Egypt so that nothing of all that belongs to the people of Israel shall die. Only in the land of Goshen where the people of Israel were was there no hail. Different treatment. But this last plague, the plague of death, 
struck at the heart of Egyptian idolatry. And when it came to this plague, it wasn't locational, it was conditional. Right? The death of the firstborn would fall on everybody in Egypt. Everybody. Unless the Israelites took the blood from the killed lamb, the sacrifice, and put it on the sides and tops of their door frames. And this really put a hammer into Egyptian idolatry and religion because the Egyptians were obsessed with death. They were really into death. And look at the Egyptian pyramid culture where the tombs were filled with unimaginable treasures and provisions. Look at the mummies and the powers the Egyptians desperately hoped would guide the dead through the journey to some kind of life after that. All this treasure, all these resources poured into solving the problem of death. But their gods had no answer to death. They could conjure blood and frogs to match God's plagues, but they couldn't undo death. They were impotent. They had no answers. And God says in Exodus 12, verse 12, I will bring judgment on all the gods of Israel of Egypt. I am the Lord. When God killed the firstborn in that tenth, last plague, he wasn't being capricious and mean and vicious. He struck down the firstborn of the Egyptians because the firstborn is the heir. The firstborn is the one who inherits the family's prospects. The firstborn is the one who holds out hope. The firstborn is the one who ensures the future takes place. And right back in chapter 4, God had said, Israel is my firstborn son, and I told you, let my son go so he may worship me. That's what he said to Pharaoh. But you refuse to let him go, so I will kill your firstborn son. Pharaoh had defied God by cruelly oppressing God's firstborn, the Israelites. He had thwarted God's plans for his people's future. And although all the Egyptians deserved to die because they were all idolaters, enemies of God, God graciously took only their firstborn. But he protected Israel's. And perhaps everyone in Egypt and the nations would see that turning your back on God brought death and a hopeless future, no future. But turning to God and trusting him gave you a future. And the only way for Israel to escape God's judgment was to do what God said and trust him. To take God at his word, to take the lamb and kill it, then to take the blood and put it around the doors, then eat the roasted lamb meat, leave nothing over, and in the Israelite houses, in every family, the lamb would be a substitute for the firstborn. Did you listen to that reading? Every house in Egypt tasted death that night. That that terrible summary at the end, there was not a house without someone dead. Not a house. Egyptian, Israelite, every house, someone dead. In the Egyptians' houses, the death was a son. But in the Israelites' houses, the death was a lamb. Loud, terrible, desperate wailing in every house of the Egyptians, but in every Israelite house, a silent night. 
And in Exodus 12 and 13, the Israelites are told to explain this clearly to their children. So that in each Israelite house, every oldest boy would wake up the next morning and think, I'm alive because the lamb died. And every Israelite would think, every Israelite, we've been set free to leave this place, cruelty, imprisonment, because the lamb died. God was very gracious, but the grace had to be paid for. Grace rests on atonement. So a one-off rescue mission, that first Passover, never to be repeated, but to be celebrated and remembered every year at Passover. And so this command, every year I want you to celebrate this rescue that I've done, this sacrifice of the lambs which has rescued you. And they would dedicate every firstborn boy of their family to God. And then suddenly, after 1,500 years, along comes Jesus and changes it. Sits down with his disciples, uses the familiar Passover ceremony, words that were used year after year in every Jewish family. And then he made a, a, a shocking change. I'm changing it. It's all about me. I want you to remember my death. You imagine Tom getting up during the Lord's Supper and saying, giving you some bread and some wine to remember my death. What would you do? Walk out? Throw your Bibles at him? That's what Jesus was doing. Yes, there was a lamb who died in every family in Egypt, but that lamb was a shadow of a sacrifice. My death, he says, about to take place will be the real sacrifice. That lamb taken and killed sacrificially in every house was part of God's rescue of his people from Egypt. But my death, in a day's time, will rescue you from judgment and sin and separation from God and hell. And in Exodus 12, everything hinged for the Israelites on whether they would take. Would they take God at his word when he gave them these instructions? Would they take the lamb as he told them, one year old and without defect? Would they take the lamb four days later and kill it at twilight? Would they take the lamb and eat it all? And would they take the blood and put it around the doorposts of their houses? Everything hinged on whether they'd be takers. They escaped death and judgment, not because they were better people than the Egyptians, not because they knew more about God, or worked harder, or did more deeds of kindness, or met regularly to worship or to say their prayers, not because they were a superior race, not because God had gone soft on their sin and his justice. Israel escaped death because they trusted God and took the lamb. And God passed over them because he provided a means of cover. He's holy, they were sinful, his justice demanded a death in every home, but for those who responded in faith and trust, he brought protection. Instead of a firstborn son, a flawless lamb offered in faith would be sufficient. And putting the blood all around the doors was proof that they took God at his word. I mean, why else would you paint fresh animal blood around your doors? It's hardly a fashion statement or the latest in home decoration, is it? Or if it was, it didn't catch on.
You'd only do it if you took very seriously the person who told you to do it. And God saw the blood on the doors and he said, I know this family trusts me. That night, a death in every home in Egypt, but in some homes there'd be a substitute, a sacrifice, one life given up in place of another. Can you imagine the tension in every Israelite family as the night went on and midnight's coming closer? Imagine the mother. Imagine the firstborn son in the family. Have you done it yet, Dad? Have you killed the lamb yet? Have you painted the blood all around the doors? Can I check and see? Don't put it off. It's getting later. Please, Dad, do it now, please. Well, it's a good story, isn't it? But what stops it from just being a detour into ancient history? Three and a half thousand years ago, a particular race of people in another culture, another part of the world. Well, God hasn't changed. Human nature hasn't changed. And we look out on our suffering world, six million people so far dead from COVID, idiotic, selfish, merciless war in Ukraine, bordering on genocide, climate change, global warming, threatening our existence as a race. And and we cry out, Lord, do something. And God hears our cries and he says, I will. But what will it be like when he does come and when he acts decisively to call us to account, to judge us, all of us, and to renew the world. I know how vulnerable I am to his verdict on my life. I know how I keep letting God down. I know how far below his standards my life and my heart's thoughts are. If only there was someone who would help me out when that day comes. I started playing soccer in the Lane Cove Rangers under-8s team. If you know me well, you'll know that I was never much good at ball games. This will be tough for my future son-in-law, Sam Seatsman, to hear. He's in England now watching Liverpool play Everton with his dad. I uh, apparently moseyed around on the back line holding hands with my friend Warwick Finch. I just didn't get the eye-foot coordination thing happening. I don't think I ever have. I was always near the bottom of the list when we chose soccer teams at school. It's a terrible experience, isn't it? But if I could have swapped my blue and white Rangers shirt with an expert, someone like Maradona or Ronaldo or Messi, so they wore Bramall on their back, how good would that have been? An expert substitute was what I needed. Then everyone would have wanted me in their team. His skills on the oval instead of mine. How good, how safe and secure would it be if I could have an expert substitute in my place when I stand before God and when you could? A perfect life in place of my rebellious life, taking on himself what I deserved, death. A lamb like the Passover lamb sacrificed in Exodus, paying the penalty. Life for life, like the Israelite firstborn sons. How good would that be? We'd be secure. Then we wouldn't need to be anxious and ask, have you done it yet, Dad? Have you sacrificed the lamb? Because God has done that through the willing sacrifice of his sinless firstborn son, Jesus. The animal sacrifices in the Old Testament were God's 
temporary provision to cover human sin and bring forgiveness. But did you notice in the Hebrews reading that the blood of sacrificed bulls and goats could never take away or remove sin? They were substituted animals in the place of people. They were symbols of a real sacrifice still to come when God would provide a final solution. Hebrews 10 that we read, for by one sacrifice he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. And where sins have been forgiven, sacrifice for sin is no longer necessary. It's done. As Paul says, Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. That's why Jesus intentionally died during the Passover festival. And that's why Jesus' own cousin, John the Baptist, when he saw Jesus coming, said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Sacrifice. When Jesus held out the bread to his disciples and said, Take it, this is my body, and this cup is the new covenant in my blood, he was saying, Take me, take me, take me in. Take me as your saviour. Or as Jesus, the sacrificed lamb, said in his own words, unless you eat the flesh and drink the blood of the Son of Man, you have no life in you. That's why when we have the Lord's Supper together, we humbly hold out an empty hand. We have nothing to offer, and we take the bread and the wine. It's a reminder that we have taken the lamb, the lamb of God, the Lord Jesus. And just as God, when he visited Egypt that night, was the God of justice and love, so God at the cross was supremely just and loving. God can't live with sin, but in Christ, sin has been done away with, paid for, covered over. Take the lamb, won't you? Take hold of God's mercy in Christ. Remember that like the Israelites, we're takers, receivers, not earners or deservers of God's mercy. We only stand in God's grace because Jesus loves us and gave himself the lamb for us to take. The engine that runs our lives as Christians is not, I love Jesus, but Jesus loves me. Jesus gave himself for me. Not, I've been good today, so Jesus should love me. I've done a good job this week, so I hope he'll love me. And it's tempting, but please don't just tell your children or the children you teach or look after that they have to love Jesus. You've got to love Jesus. That's not the gospel. That's law. And none of us can do that consistently. We're no good at it. We'll fail at it sometimes. Our children will fail at it sometimes. You'll fail at it. At it, and in the end, it'll make you discouraged and doubtful. Tell yourself and the children you lead, Jesus loves you. He loves you. Give thanks and rejoice. Take the gift. That's the gospel. And there'll be days and weeks when you perform pretty well and live obediently and you're full of joy and praise to God. And there'll be days when you don't. But you're free because the lamb died for you, a sacrifice, and set you free from slavery to sin and death and the law. Jesus loves me. This I know, for the Bible tells me so. Take the lamb.
the lamb's been sacrificed and God has passed over you as you trust him. I'm alive, you're alive, because the lamb died. Let's pray together. We want to thank you, our Father, for your great, astonishing act of mercy to the Israelites in providing lambs in the place of those who should have died, but even more, much more, in providing Jesus, the Lamb, the the priest and the sacrifice together for us, us, we who should have died, and yet he did. Help us to take him. Help us to remember that we're alive because the lamb died, that he loves us and we can never undo his love for us. And may we serve him with thankful hearts as we remember his work, his death in our place. And we pray that in his name. Amen.